0: Ezekiel chapter 20. This is our third week in this. It's been an amazing story. It's a long chapter. I'll explain as we get into it. I've called it the history of Israel's rebellions and God's great mercy. So I'll just pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. And we thank you that you are always faithful to keep your promises Lord, we are saved not because of our own goodness, but for your name's sake, because long ago you promised to make a way for people to be saved from sin. And so we thank you for your promise to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's do a memory verse. Ezekiel 36:26 to 27, so for our visitors we say this out loud together. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Awesome. So, over the last two times we met, we've been learning about God bringing the Israelites out of the land of Egypt into the wilderness, and then finally into the promised land.
1: Now, what does it take to enter the promised land? You've got to grow up, right? You've got to learn to trust God. We need to mature in our relationship with God because the
0: wilderness is characterized by the carnal or immature Christian who doesn't either know their Bible or they know it but don't obey it. So how do we grow up? Well, by reading and obeying and applying the Scriptures and constantly repenting of any sin or worldliness that God reveals to us so our hearts don't grow hard towards Him. And that's really important. We can read it, but if we don't put it into practice, it's not going to do us any good. We're going to read later that, The Israelites heard the word, they were at Mount Sinai for a whole year. They heard the word, they were taught by God and by Moses, but it didn't do them any good because it was not mixed with faith. And they didn't put it into practice. So that brings us to the next point. We have to learn to walk by faith, trusting God to provide and overcome, even when we can't see how it is possible. And we have learned that God loves doing the impossible. And finally, we need to guard our affections. We need to make sure that Jesus remains our first love. Anything that becomes more important than God must be either discarded or put in its proper place. And a verse that I like which talks about what it means to be mature is 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, the second part. It says, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the wicked one. So the word of God abiding in us, memorizing it, studying it, making it our meat, not just the milk, but the meat that we chew on as we go through the day and in the mornings. So the last section of Ezekiel chapter twenty is verses thirty-three to forty-nine, and I've broken it down into three sections. The first one is the separation judgment of the Israelites between the end of the seven-year tribulation and the start of the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ. I'll talk about that in a minute. Then the future restoration and regathering of Israel. And then the coming judgment upon the land of Judah. So it goes into the future, a long way into the future. So firstly, the first section there, verses 33 to 38, I've called this the separation judgment of the Israelites between the end of the seven-year tribulation and the start of a thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus. So, before we keep going, let's just revise what the timeline is. So, at the moment, what are we in? Church age, age of grace, the church age. Now, we believe that the next prophetic event to happen will be the rapture, soon followed by the seven-year tribulation. The seven-year tribulation finishes when Jesus comes back at the second coming. Following that, we have the millennial reign where God establishes his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years, we have the great white throne judgment where all the unbelievers are judged. And at the end of that, we have the new heavens and the new earth. So let's read the scripture and we'll see how it all fits in. Ezekiel twenty thirty three to 38 As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with my fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will plead my case with you, says the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge the rebels from among you, and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel then you will know that I am the Lord. So this is a an amazing prophecy. So we've gone from God telling the people, hey, you've been terrible sinners in Egypt, you've been terrible sinners in the wilderness, you've been terrible sinners in the promised land even. And then he gives them this beautiful promise that there's going to be this future gathering and they're going to be restored to the land when they definitely don't deserve it. So let's look at the big picture first and see where this fits in. So the big picture is this. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, Jesus leaves heaven to come back to earth with his bride, that is us, the church. We call that the second coming. He comes back as a warrior, as a conquering king. And Jesus defeats his enemies at the Battle of Armageddon. And as you know, it's going to be a bloodbath, blood rising to the horse's bridles. You see that in Revelation 19, to 21. Now when Jesus finishes destroying the Antichrist and his armies, he's going to judge between believers and unbelievers. Now Daniel 12, through 12, tells us that there's going to be a gap, a 75-day gap between the end of the tribulation and the start of the millennial reign. And in that time, several things happen. The temple is established, the New Jerusalem, all that is built. It's an amazing building program, and he's 75 days to build a city and a temple and establish his government and all those things. But another important thing is going to happen, and that is another separation judgment, actually two. One for the Gentiles and one for the Jews. In Matthew 25, 31 to 46, it talks about the sheep and goat judgment at Mount Zion in Jerusalem, where the Gentiles
1: before Christ the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And do you know what happens to the goats? They're cast away into Hades.
0: They're taken from this earth, and they go to Hades. The believers, where do they go? Well, they live on, and they go into the millennial reign, the thousand-year kingdom of God on earth. There's another judgment which is parallel to this, and that is the judgment of the Jews. Because remember, in the tribulation, it's the time of Israel. It's the time dedicated to Israel, the 490 years back in Daniel chapter 9. So, God is dealing with Israel separately. The church is not there during the tribulation. It's Israel and the Gentiles. That's how it was before the church came along. So. The three separation judgments, so I just want to explain these so we get it clear. So the rapture, which occurs before the tribulation begins, and the Gentile and Jewish judgments, which occur between the time of the second coming and the millennial reign, are all separation judgments. These are not the great white throne judgment. At the great white throne judgment, it's a permanent judgment where they are cast into the lake of fire and they stay there forever Or the unbelievers. The separation judgments are where people are removed from the earth for a purpose. So a group of people are removed from the earth for a purpose. So at the rapture, what's a purpose? Well, the righteous are removed before the time of the tribulation because God doesn't punish the innocent with the guilty. And you can see several verses here: Genesis eighteen twenty-five, Revelation 3 10, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-11. So this means that the true believers will be spared God's wrath. And God's going to pour out his wrath on this world, this evil world, during the seven-year tribulation. That's one of the purposes of the tribulation. So only unbelievers will stay on the earth and will enter the tribulation. So... You think, well, aren't we suffering now? Well, yes we are. But the suffering we experience now is simply the result of sin. And I bet we all wish that Adam and Eve never ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the suffering that we experience now is just due to sin
1: and the consequences of sin and the curse and death that comes from sin. It's nothing compared to what is going to happen during the tribulation. Now,
0: we move forward and we go to the end of the tribulation and now the next event will be the millennial reign. Would it be right for God to let the guilty, the unbelieving, into his kingdom? No, because that would be giving the guilty a free pass, right? So God doesn't let the guilty go free and the guilty must be punished. Therefore, just as the innocent or righteous were spared from the time of God's wrath, so the guilty or unrepentant will be excluded from the glorious time when the kingdom of God is on earth, the millennial reign. So, prior to the beginning of the millennial reign, when Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth, all unbelievers, with the Gentiles and Jews judged separately, they'll all be sent to torment in Hades to await the day in God's court, the great white throne judgment. And that's where they'll receive their sentence. But this is just a separation judgment. It's just separating the righteous from the wicked. So this means that all believers who survive the tribulation will automatically go into the millennial reign and repopulate the earth. So let's have a look at our verses, verses 33 to 38, and see how this fits in. So, What happens? Well, in 33 to 35, God by force rescues all the Jews from the oppression of the Antichrist and causes all of them to gather in one place in the wilderness, so in the desert. So this is different from the sheep and goat judgment which happens at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Now, it could be Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia or it could be Eden, it doesn't specify. The next thing that happens is that God, or Jesus, pleads his case with his people face to face. You Remember it says they will see him, the one whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him like a father, mourns for his only son. So Jesus will be there and he'll be stating his case to them. They will know that he is the Messiah. But then here comes the separation part of it in verses 37 and 38. God separates the believing Jews from the unbelieving Jews that is, those who still haven't accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And making them pass under the rod, as it says in those verses, it pictures a shepherd holding out his rod and forcing the sheep to pass under it single file for counting. And you see an example of this in Jeremiah 33.13. So the shepherd would let those sheep that were actually his enter the fold, while those who were not his would be excluded. And that's what it means by passing under the rod. And that's what it means. The result is God says, I will purge the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. So he's going to bring all the Jews into the wilderness somewhere and he's going to cause them to pass under the rod, meaning he's going to separate. It's like a sheep and a goat judgment for the Jews. They're all going to come to one place, but not all of them are going to enter the land of Israel. The unbelieving Jews will not enter the millennial reign, only the believing Jews. Now, with prophecy it always gets a little bit complicated. Why? Because you have dual fulfillments. So, one fulfillment could be close to the time of writing, and one could be in a more distant time. So, like in Deuteronomy as we have read previously, God predicted that the Jews would go into captivity. They would sin, they would be cast out of the land. Well, that's happened twice now, right? 586 BC and 8070. So a dual fulfillment of that prediction, of that prophecy. And the same applies to God bringing them back into the land. In Daniel's day, God did cause the Israelites to return to the land, but it hasn't fulfilled all the details of this prophecy. So, for example, not all the Jews were gathered into one place. They were all still scattered around and they just came back to Israel in dribs and drabs in different places, mainly from Babylon. But they never got gathered to one place. They never saw Jesus face to face. They never saw God face to face. But it was partly fulfilled, partially fulfilled because not all of the Israelites returned to the land of Israel. So God did a bit of a separation here. He brought back the ones he wanted and left the others in Babylon and in different countries. Now, the other thing that God promised in these verses is that he would bring them into the bond of the covenant. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be brought under the bond of the covenant? Well, it's the new covenant. This is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Israel that when he regathers them, he will give them a new heart and a new spirit. And you can see Ezekiel eleven, seventeen to 21 and 36, 22 to 38, where it. Goes into a fair bit of detail there about that. Now, do you think Israel has been given a new heart and a new spirit yet? (laughs) No. So that's going to happen to them during the tribulation, towards the end of the tribulation. That's what. That's the second purpose of the tribulation. The first is to judge the world. Second is to cause Israel to turn to their Messiah. Now, I've got an application here. It's an encouraging application. It says, God keeps his promise to finish what he starts. So in verse 33 it says, As I live, says the Lord God, I will rule over you. Now that sounds pretty demanding, doesn't it? But it's actually a good promise. God will rule over his people. They will eventually experience the joy that comes from being fully committed to God, even if they have been persistently unfaithful. And this is an awesome picture of God's grace. Giving them the opportunity, guaranteeing the opportunity to have a close relationship with him even though they've been unfaithful. And Philippians 1.6 in the NLT says, And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Or we go to be with him, obviously. So the change in us, can I change myself? No. Only God can transform us into his image. Now, we can help speed up the process. The process is called sanctification. All right. We can make this experience we call sanctification, or the Bible calls sanctification, we can make it less painful or more enjoyable, depending on your perspective, by being more willing to forsake the world and follow Christ. So we can be like a naughty kid who's always getting in trouble by the parents and have a pretty difficult childhood, always getting in trouble, being grounded and losing privileges. But guess what? They still grow up. They still leave home and get married and get a job, you know, all that stuff, if they choose to submit to mom and dad, then they can have a much better childhood. And that's the same with us down here on earth. As God is transforming us, we can make the process difficult or easy, but it's still going to happen. doesn't matter how stubborn we are, and that's the story, the picture we get with the children of Israel. God will not give up on his people no matter how difficult they are to get along with. The only caveat here, I would say, is that if we don't follow him closely here, then we're not going to have much of a reward. We're not going to have much to show for our time on earth. If I waste my time here, if I live my life in the wilderness, as we've been talking about, then I'll get to heaven and everything that I've worked for would have been for myself and it's going to burn. And as it says in corinthians will still be allowed into heaven but only through the fire <laughs> as though through fire like everything else has been burnt so we want to live by faith and so what we do lasts it's the gold and silver and precious stones so now we come to the next section it's the future restoration and regathering of israel and it's verses 39 to 44. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. This sounds strange. Go, serve every one of you his idols, (laughs) and hereafter, if you will not obey me. But profane my holy name no more with your gifts and your idols. For on my holy mountain, on the mountain height of Israel, says the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all them in the land shall serve me. There I will accept them and there I will require your offerings and the firstfruits of your sacrifices, together with all your holy things. I will accept you as a sweet aroma when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will be hallowed or honoured in you before the Gentiles. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel into the country for which I raised my hand in an oath to give to your fathers, and there you shall remember your ways and all your doings with which you were defiled, and you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils that you have committed. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings. O house of Israel, says the Lord God. This is just one of the many passages that we've been reading in Ezekiel and other parts of the Bible. It's all about God's promises, and it's not about our performance. And so we can rest in that. That's God's grace. Saved by grace. Now, verse 39, I've called this, Choose this day who you will serve. Remember Joshua said that? As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go serve every one of you his idols, and hereafter, if you will not obey me, but profane my holy name no more with your gifts and your idols. So, who is he talking to? Remember, back in verse 1, the elders of the nation of Israel who have been exiled, and they're in Babylon with Ezekiel, they're sitting before the prophet Ezekiel and saying, what's God got for us today? And this is what God is saying. Well, I'm going to give you a choice, a challenge. Verse 39, it says, Go, serve every one of you his idols. So, Israel has been suffering from a divided heart for centuries. One foot in the world, serving the idols, and one foot in God's kingdom. Now, in the New Testament, in Revelation, what does God call this? In the New Testament, in Revelation, chapter 3. Yeah, the Laodicean church. Yep. So we could call them Laodicean Israel. The lukewarm Israel. What does God want to do with them? Vomit them out of his mouth. He hates it when we're lukewarm. He would rather us be hot or cold. Either live as a believer or don't. It's your choice. God is not going to force you to love him and obey him. But don't claim to be a believer when you aren't living like one because it brings much shame to God. And that's basically what God is saying here. When you pretend to be a Jew and you're living like the world, you bring shame to me. And unfortunately, the wilderness Christians who have the illegitimate wilderness experience when they don't mature and they don't grow, this is what happens. They bring shame to the name of God. So, to assist with their choice, God took them to Babylon. He gave them everything they wanted, every worldly thing they wanted. Babylon was literally crazy with their idols, it says in Jeremiah 50.38. For it is the land of carved images, and they are insane with their idols. So, God called his people, David Guzik says, God called his people to a decision point. If they wanted to serve the idols, then they might as well make up their minds and do it. Let them become Babylonians in every regard now that they were in Babylon. So make up your mind. No more being half-hearted. Be hot or be cold. Serve me or serve the idols. But don't pretend to
1: do both. 40 and 41. When Israel returns to the land, they will worship God with their
0: whole heart. That's my summary of these two verses. It says, For on my holy mountain, On the mountain height of Israel, says the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, shall serve me. There I will accept them, and there I will require your offerings and the first fruits of your sacrifices, together with all your holy things. I will accept you as a sweet aroma when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will be hallowed in you before the Gentiles. So not all the Israelites are going to come back. Now what does this mean, to serve him? What's the context here? Well, there's a quote from Feinberg. He says, concerning the phrase, shall serve me, they will render priestly service to God. For the word serve is a technical term for a priestly ministry. and You can compare Exodus nine eighty six, a kingdom of kings and priests, to God. So a good promise, awesome promise for the Israelites. Why? Because very soon, what's going to happen to their temple? Solomon's temple It's going to be destroyed, right? The Babylonians are going to destroy it. And so here is a promise that they would once again have a temple. It would be rebuilt and they would indeed serve and worship God on his holy mountain once more. And that happened under the leadership of Ezra and Zerubbabel. So in verse 40, On my holy mountain, all the house of Israel, all of them in the land shall serve me. There I will accept them. And all this despite their sins and persistent unfaithfulness. So God promises to accept those who choose to return to the land. Meaning those who had chosen to seek God with their whole heart. So just to put this in perspective, leaving Babylon after being there 70 years, you would have built up quite a lifestyle. A worldly lifestyle with all the, the gadgets, you know, the iPhones and, you know, to put it in
1: context, yeah, the nice cars, and then probably BMW, and then spent a lot of time, you know, gathering goods.
0: To go back to Israel would mean going back to a rulan. Leave your nice house, leave your nice cars and your wealth, and going to a Rulon, and you have to start from scratch. So, they had to be dedicated. It wasn't for the half-hearted. It was a dangerous route. It was a dangerous place to live. There's lots of enemies around and it was a difficult job rebuilding a city
1: with not having many resources and not much wealth. So those who went back, they had decided to commit
0: themselves to the Lord. Verse 41, it says, I will accept you as a sweet aroma when I bring you out from the people's So this shows that God is not begrudgingly accepting them. Oh, I suppose I better bring you back. I did promise to. No. It's a sweet aroma. God says, Oh, my people are back in the land. This is fantastic. A sweet aroma, like when you smell the barbecue cooking, oh, I can't wait to taste that meat, yeah? So God is pleased with them. And so what's the application for us? When we repent. God finds great pleasure in our repentance. He willingly and enthusiastically welcomes them back. And it's like the parable of the prodigal son, where the father runs to meet his repentant son. Also says in verse 41, And I will be hallowed in you before the Gentiles. So our obedience, just like the Jews' obedience in their day, brings honor and glory to God. And again, the opposite is also true. Our disobedience brings shame and reproach upon God. So, the next part in this section is verses 42 to 44. And I've titled this, Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And it's written twice in here. It's quoted twice. This is an important phrase. It says, Then you shall know that I am the Lord, when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for which I raise my hand in an oath, promise, to give to your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all your doings with which you were defiled. And you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils that you have committed. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, like for his honour. Not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says the Lord God. So, then you should know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel. So God reveals or shows himself to be real and true by how? He always keeps his promises. God, through Ezekiel and Jeremiah, publicly promised to bring Israel back into the land. And so he had to, right? God can't make a promise and not keep it. He's there to use Israel to be a witness to the world. Israel is like his tool. He loves them, yes, but they're also his tool to be a light to the Gentiles, right? The nations were watching. Now, what about our day, 1948? Again, God has brought the people back into the land. It was a miracle, that vote in the UN in 1948. And there should be no doubt in anyone's mind as to God's existence, his goodness, and his faithfulness to keep his promises. And verse 42, it says, For which I raise my hand in an oath to give to your fathers. Again, just want to point out that God doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God promised the land to Abraham and his covenant descendants in Genesis twelve one to 3 And I just want to point out that, who does that land belong to? Israel, okay. whether they are in the land or not, it's still theirs because God gave it to them. And what happens to those who go against Israel? Well, as part of the promise that God gave to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. So I would suggest that we don't go against God and oppose God by not recognizing Israel's legitimate and eternal claim to all the land of Israel. Now, in verse 43, this is a great verse. It gives us a picture of what genuine repentance looks like. So, it says this, And there you shall remember your ways and all your doings with which you were defiled, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils that you have committed. So, there's two main things we can learn about repentance here, two steps that are defined in this verse. So, you shall remember your ways with which you were defiled. So, a couple of quotes. Recognition is the first thing in Reformation. So, recognition is the first thing in Reformation. That's my trap. And Locke says, As elsewhere, the word translated remember does not mean simply to recall to mind, but to acknowledge, to take account of, accept responsibility for their conduct. It's important isn't it repentance is accepting that yeah i've actually done the wrong thing i take responsibility for that so the first thing the first step in repenting is to recognize that what we have done and what we're doing is sinful and has defiled us we must accept full responsibility for our choices yes this is wrong it was my choice alone i can't and won't blame anyone or anything else like adam and eve did right Rather, I will take full responsibility for what I have done. That's what it means. You shall remember your ways. You shall accept responsibility for what you did. And then the second part. And you shall loathe or despise yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils that you have committed. So the second thing we need to do when repenting is to grieve or mourn over our sins being disgusted by our sin and also recognizing our moral bankruptcy. Remember Romans 7.18? For I know that in me, my sinful nature, nothing good dwells. Now, what's the opposite of this? The opposite is to justify ourselves and continue to find pleasure in the things which are destroying us. So instead of being sorry and disgusted by what I've just done, we start to Well, I can start to justify myself and continue in that sin. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, verses 3 and 4? He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit who recognize, and I put this in, who recognize their moral bankruptcy. So, poor in spirit, those who recognize their moral bankruptcy, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's salvation, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, I've added, over their sins. Blessed are those who mourn over their
1: sins, for they shall be comforted. So we recognize our moral bankruptcy, we're poor in
0: spirit, we recognize that there is no good in us, and we cry out for God to save us and give us his righteousness, and we mourn over our sin, and God comforts us when we do that. Now, another application. That's genuine repentance. What about non-genuine repentance? What about, Incomplete repentance. What does that look like? So, firstly, again, an incomplete fulfillment. Israel, when they came back into the land, yes, they did repent. They did come back seemingly with a heart fully dedicated to God. But it wasn't quite what God will give them or will do in them when they come into the millennial reign. It's almost there, but it's not there. I'm going to quote here. These promises may, in a certain limited sense, be applied to the restoration from the Babylonian captivity, but they must have their proper fulfillment when the Jews shall accept Jesus as their Savior and, in consequence, be brought back from all their dispersions to their own land. So this is mainly for the future, but partially fulfilled in Daniel's day. So we can learn, again, from the Israel's limited repentance. They repented, but not fully. Even when they returned to the land of Israel, yes, they were faithful to rebuild and do all those things. But there were always problems. The rich were oppressing the poor. Men were marrying pagan women, you know, Gentile women. There was worldliness, there was greed, there was divorce and neglect of the temple, the things of God. Remember what Malachi said, you know, (laughs) about divorce and not giving? They weren't really focused on the Lord. They were still focused on themselves. So, they didn't worship idols anymore. That was good. Really good. But the change didn't go deep enough. Those other areas of their life, which we just talked about, show that they weren't fully committed or fully yielded to God. So, they did enough to remain in the land, but they were almost always under God's discipline in some way. So, God sent famine and poverty and, and different things to try and get their attention and say, hang on you know, what are you doing? Why are you marrying those foreign wives? You know, why are you oppressing the poor in the land? And why are you materialistic and worldly trying to build your own house instead of building my temple? And he made them poor. So in my life, I've experienced this. There's been times in my life when I've repented and dealt with the big sins, the outward sins, like the addictions and whatever, but I've failed to fully seek God. Instead, I've held on to some sins that aren't so obvious, some things that I can continue to enjoy in private. I allow myself to be a little like the world, but not too much. I do enough to stay in the promised land, but I don't really enjoy it because I'm still grieving the Holy Spirit. So, what happens at the end of this if I keep this up? Well, the Israelites show us. Their hearts became hardened by their sin, and it cost them. 400 years later, their hearts were so hard that when their Messiah came, they wanted him crucified. And then the result was they got kicked out of the land again by the Romans in AD 70. So I'm either growing closer to God or more distant from him. I might be moving away very slowly, but I'm still moving away. And the result will be, eventually I will be kicked out of the promised land back into the wilderness, yeah? I'll be bringing dishonor to God, and it will be made clear. In the end, the true condition of my heart will eventually be revealed. And a couple of verses that talk about this. Numbers 32.23 from NLT. It says, But if you fail to keep your word, then you will have sinned against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. And Luke 8.16-18, again from the NLT. No one lights a lamp and then covers it with a bowl or hides it under a bed. A lamp is placed on a stand where it can be seen by all who enter the house. For all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open. And everything that is concealed will be brought into light and made known to all. That's a scary verse, isn't it? So pay attention to how you hear to those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But for those who are not listening, even what they think they understand will be taken away from them. So if we're not listening, meaning that we don't have ears to hear, meaning that we have a hard heart and the words are bouncing off, we're not going to be understanding and the little we had will be taken away. We're going backwards. So pay attention to the condition of your heart. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, "He who has ears, let him hear. What's the condition of your heart? Are you soft? Are you willing to accept the correction that God gives us through his word? If so, we will grow. When we allow things to be revealed and we repent of those things, but if we try and conceal them, it will be brought to light and made known to all eventually. And verse 44 in Ezekiel 20, I've titled this God's mercy and loving kindness in his dealings with men. It says this, Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel. So the Israelites would understand God's infinite love and mercy when they came back into the land. They would understand they were completely undeserving of everything that God had done for them. They should have been wiped out. God could have started again. Again, he chose not to. Why? Because he promised not to. He promised he would stick with this group of people. And so this experience, then walking away from God and then God bringing them back, would help them to better understand his great love for them. They would see and know that he truly cared for them. And this is what God means when he says, Then you shall know that I am the Lord. It's not just that he exists, but who is he? You know, he loves you and he cares for you. And quote here from Morgan, Israel would have new understanding of Jehovah and come to know that the perpetual reason for his operation was the glory of his name, where it says, for my name's sake. And not merely punishing them for the evil ways, that is to say, the punishment of Jehovah was never merely vindictive. Or punitive, but always a process of moving towards the realization of his original intention of good to the nations of the earth. So, everything he did through the nation of Israel was to be a light to the world. So, if they disobeyed, there was a judgment which showed who he is, and if they obeyed, there was a blessing again which showed who he is. So, now we come to the third section the coming judgment upon the land of Judah, verses 45 to 49. Furthermore, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the south, preach against the south, and prophesy against the forest land the south. And say to the forests of the south, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree and every dry tree in you. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from the south to the north shall be scorched by it. All flesh shall see the eye, the Lord have kindled it, and it shall not be quenched. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, they say of me, Does he not speak parables? <laughs> we'll come back later. Right. So, verse 45. Son of man, set your face toward the south. So this is referring to Israel, the southern part of Israel, or Judah, and in particular the Negev desert down there. There's a couple of quotes explaining what the words mean there but basically three different words for south and referring to the southern part of israel the land of judah and say to the forest of the south behold i will kindle a fire in you and it shall devour every green tree and every dry tree in you now we've seen lots of forest fires around the world lately big ones what happens when the forest is dry and a fire starts It's an inferno, isn't it? Can they put it out? No. They just try and do fire rates and stuff and they can't put it out. So would the Babylonian invasion be unstoppable and equally as destructive? So this is a description of the destruction that would come. So as a manger fire destroys all the trees, even the green ones, so the Babylonian army would take captive all the people even the ones who are relatively righteous. And Smith says, that fire would consume every green tree as well as every dry one. The thought is that both the righteous and the wicked would suffer from the devastation caused by the Chaldean or Babylonian invaders. So our sin does affect other people. In verse 48 it says, All flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. The judgment will be so severe, so complete that there will be no doubt in the eyes of the world that this judgment was from God. They go, this is incredible. How can this be? This has never happened to anyone before. This is amazing. Well, when God blesses, he really blesses. And when God judges, he really judges. And this is concerning the land of Israel, the nation of Israel. Now, we come to verse 49. And I'll Title this: Ezekiel is frustrated because of the nation's spiritual blindness. And we can get some application from this, and he says, "Ah, Lord God!" He's crying out passionately to God. Now, I reckon he's completely frustrated. No one seems to be listening, and the nation is determined to continue in their rebellion against God. Imagine how hard that would be as a prophet to see the people you're talking to continue in their sin and walk straight into this judgment that God had said would happen if you don't repent. And you know how you get that phrase, you know, you bang your head against a brick wall? Maybe that's how Ezekiel felt. And it says, does he not speak in parables? A couple of quotes here. First one from David Guzik. The elders of Israel, and go back to verse 1, and others rejected or even despised Ezekiel's message because they claimed it was hard to understand their lack of understanding was willful and would be judged. And Feinberg says men find difficulty in understanding a message which is distasteful to them. <laughs> if you don't want to hear it, guess what? You don't want to hear it. It is well known to the unwilling heart. Any message from God appears to be difficult of comprehension. If you've got a hard heart, what happens? It bounces off. You don't hear. And I've got some verses from Second Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. Chapter 3, verse 14. But the people's minds were hardened, and to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can only be removed by believing in Christ. And 4, verse 4. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil... It is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news, that is the gospel. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. So when we're sharing with our family and friends and and those around, remember this. Don't think that if I can present this really well, that I can convince them to become a Christian or convince them they're a sinner. It's beyond our ability. We cannot convince or persuade someone to be a Christian. Unfortunately, people try. How do they do it? Well, they have emotional services and they have an altar call and people come up and and they think because they've come up they're now a Christian. Have they repented? Have they counted the cost? Have they taken the time to think about what is this going to mean for me? Am I willing to give all those worldly things up for the sake of Christ?
1: Probably not. So, what we need to do is pray. When we're witnessing the people, prayer
0: is the main thing. We need to be praying that God will work in their hearts and they choose to respond by softening their hearts. So, this is a spiritual battle. And again, we must labor in prayer for those who we are seeking to win to Christ or bring to repentance, if they're already saved, but just walking away from Christ. Now, that's the end of chapter 20. But I skipped over some parts in chapter 20. Parts that talked about the Sabbath and the law. So I'm going to deal with those separately now. So the Sabbath feast. Reality versus shadow. We'll read verses 12 and 20 later. But here we learn why God mentioned the Sabbath feast in relation to the promised land. So what I'm going to do is demonstrate there's a difference between the reality and the shadow. So we'll go through the seven feasts and how they picture salvation history. And I've got this from Warren Wisby. So the Passover feast... So, you had lots of rules and regulations for that, right? And basically, the main point was each family had a lamb and they sacrificed the lamb. They had the lamb, and the lamb was their substitute. So, they went through all these procedures and sacrifice. But what's the reality? It was the Messiah who died for us, right? The unleavened bread. Again, they had the picture, they had the rules of using the unleavened bread and breaking it and hiding it and all that kind of stuff. But what's the reality of it? It's the Christian life of fellowship, separation from sin and feeding on Christ. The Feast of First Fruits. Well, what's the reality? What's the fulfillment of that? It's the resurrection of Christ. Pentecost. Again, with all its rules and regulations back then, it's a picture of the reality, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Feast of Trumpets. Again, lots of different rules and regulations there, procedures. But what's it a picture of? What's the reality? The gathering together of God's people at the rapture, I believe. And then you've got the Day of Atonement. What is that a picture of? Well, back then you had the scapegoat and all those kind of things. What is here, the reality, which is yet to come, is the future cleansing of God's people the children of Israel in particular. And then tabernacles. Again, this one's future as well. They lived in booths and, you know, had palm branches for the roof and all that kind of stuff. But the fulfillment is, the reality is, the future joy of God's people in his kingdom, the millennial reign, as we spoke about before. So I'm just gonna read Colossians chapter two, verses sixteen and seventeen from the NLT. It says this So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink. Or for not celebrating certain holy days, that is those feast days that we just talked about, or new moon ceremonies, that's the once a month ceremony or ritual, or Sabbath, the once a week rest day. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. So all those seven feasts that we just went through very, very quickly, they all link back to Christ. Ordering back to God in some way. So if there's going to be a shadow, there must be an object to cause the shadow, yeah? So the shadow is because Jesus is the object, Jesus is the reality, and the shadow is just cast because the object is there. So we need to be looking at Christ, not the shadow. So an analogy. Imagine if I went home today and instead of hugging my wife and you know, holding her hand and I hug her shadow and I hold her, try and hold her shadow hand and I talk to her shadow face. You know, she'd be looking at me saying, Are you okay? You know, the are you okay thing? Do you need to talk to someone? But that's what it's like for many people who claim to have a relationship with the risen savior, but who are in effect only hugging and talking to shadows as they seek to gain or achieve their righteousness by keeping certain
1: feasts or laws. What's another name for that? Legalism, right? What does the scripture say about trying to keep the law?
0: Well, if you want to be made right with God, you must keep all of the laws perfectly. As it says in Ezekiel chapter 20, as we read but didn't really study previously. And I gave them my statutes, and showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. So if you do them, you'll live. Which means if you don't, you won't. Yeah, you'll die. And that phrase, which if a man does, he shall live by them, is repeated many times in the scriptures. And you can see the references in your notes. So the whole point of the law is to show us that we are sinners in need of a saviour because we are all born with a sin nature. And Romans 8 3 is an amazing verse. It explains this. God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have, right? And it, and it continues God did what the law could not do. The law cannot make anyone perfect. We need a saviour because we cannot
1: keep the law because, as it says there in Romans 8 3, of our sinful nature. Now, what did Jesus do? Well, because we can't live a perfect life, he did it
0: on our behalf. Jesus lived a perfect life, and he imputes or credits his perfect life to us when we repent and believe. It's just as if I would lived a perfect life. I am justified by God. You could also say it's just as if I would never sinned. But it's more right to say it's just as if I lived a perfect life. That's how God the Father sees us. That's what justification is. So, now we come to the Sabbath feast. It's mentioned in verse 12 and 20 of Ezekiel chapter 20. And I'll read those verses now. Moreover, I also gave them, meaning Israel, my Sabbaths, to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them or sets them apart verse 20 says hello my sabbath and they will be a sign between me and you meaning again the nation of Israel and you got a similar verse in Exodus 31:13 so who is the sabbath given to just the jews yeah it's a particular sign that sets the jews apart from everybody else Because back until the late stages of the Roman Empire, there was not a day off. Everyone worked seven days a week. And one of the problems with the Jews was they wanted to be like the nations and they stopped resting on the Sabbath and they started working on the Sabbath. God made them different. That's what most of the laws were for, is to make them
1: different, to keep them separate from the world. That's the purpose of the Sabbath. Sanctify them to set them apart from the world, so let's learn about what the
0: Sabbath shadow is, okay, what is the shadow, what is the rules and the regulations? It says this: Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord, your God. in it you shall do no work for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So, the Sabbath shadow, if I can call it that, the ritual, or the rule, is all about resting from our physical work. So, in contrast, now we're going to look at the book of Hebrews to finish off, and see that the Sabbath reality is resting in Christ by ceasing from our own works or self Effort. And we'll read that in Hebrews 4:10. It's the same thing as living by faith and not by sight, as we've been talking about in previous weeks, and it's also represented or pictured by life in the promised land. Again, where we walk by faith. Okay, so this Sabbath reality is actually a really important thing, and that's why God mentions it twice in this chapter, where it's talking about the wilderness and the promised land. So, just a quote here, The promised land is a picture of the Sabbath reality, where one must by faith, daily, depend upon God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Now, what can we do for ourselves? <laughs> nothing. Yeah, well done. Okay. So, John fifteen five: I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. So we need to live by faith and depend upon God for everything because without him we can do nothing. And Galatians 2.20 is another awesome verse to look up. So Hebrews 3.7-4.11, in these verses, God explains the Sabbath reality using, guess what, the same exact story that we're looking at in the book of Ezekiel. It's the children of Israel and the failure of the first generation to enter the promised land. And when it says they shall not enter my rest, it's actually meaning they shall not enter the promised land. So let's read those verses. Hebrews three, seven to four eleven, the Sabbath reality, as I call it, as opposed to the Sabbath shadow, which is having a rest on a Saturday. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. See that in the wilderness? Where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation, the first generation of the Israelites to come out of Egypt, and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. They shall not go into the promised land. Verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So, an evil heart of unbelief, hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That's the wilderness. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today if you will hear his voice, remember we talked about that, hearing his voice? Hear his ears, let him hear. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. We can make the same mistake as the Israelites did. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest in the promised land, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So again, the Sabbath rest is all about walking by faith. Putting our trust in God, to him to do things for us, and not us doing it ourselves. Chapter 4 continues, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Like This means going into our spiritual promised land, walking by faith. Yeah? For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but, and listen to this carefully, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed, do enter that rest. See, it's either we believe we have faith, or it's a lack of faith because of unbelief. And again, he repeats this: "So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest; they shall not go into the promised land." Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. So right from the beginning, the rest day was a picture of our rest in Christ. Verse 6, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, because that's what the promise was, right? Some must enter. Remember, in the Old Testament, it's just a picture. It's the shadow. Now it's the reality. And to those whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again he designates a certain day, saying in David, "Today." After such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. So it means it was not fulfilled in Joshua's time. Which means it's future.
1: Guess who it's for? For the new covenant, right? For us in the new covenant. And eventually, Israel will be there too.
0: There therefore remains a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, that is God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. You know, when he rested on the seventh day. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So, verse 10, really important. For he who has entered God's rest, his rest, has himself also ceased from his works works as God did from his. So we don't do things on our own effort, by our own strength, by our own resources, by our own smarts. Instead, we trust God. It's a spiritual battle. Now, conclusion. The promised land was a land flowing with milk and honey, the best of all the lands. The land that God had gone to great trouble to go and search out for them. Yet, it was also a place where it was impossible, humanly speaking, to survive. How does that make sense to you? God says, this is the best place for you, but you can't survive there by yourself. Why would God do that? There were hostile giants and cities with high walls that they were helpless against. So again, why was this the best place for them? Because when they learned in the wilderness to trust God, to walk by faith, to live in submission to and by the power of the Holy Spirit, to allow Christ to live his life through them, it was only then that they could experience the sweet fellowship, peace, love, joy, etc. that comes from abiding in Christ. See, without that push, without that giving us this impossible task where we have to depend on him, we wouldn't. Does that make sense? And so God puts us in the promised land, which is a place of enemies and war, so we are forced to trust in him and the same is true for us today but our promised land is not a physical one but a spiritual one instead of cities and giants that we can't overcome we have three enemies you know what they are so we have the world this world system evil world system we have our flesh our sinful nature and we have the devil the demonic realm so we must learn to fight with spiritual weapons to trust in what we cannot see to study the word so that our faith will grow and most importantly be willing to give up worldly or temporary things so that we can enjoy eternal things. What's a big thing today that most young people are struggling with? Relationships, boyfriends, girlfriends, lust, all those things, yeah? It's a big problem. Now, in First Corinthians 9.24 to 10.15, we're not going to read it today, but it's something I'd like you to, I'd encourage you to read if you get time. Paul uses the same example of the same people, the Israelites, the first generation, to explain why so many Christians end up disqualified. And that's what his word is for stuck in the wilderness, right? Disqualified. Disqualified from entering the promised land. You're not losing your salvation, you are just disqualified. You are not walking by faith. You cannot serve him.
1: You're not trusting him.
0: You're in the world. So, What are those reasons that he lists? Well, I've just
1: summarized it here a lack of discipline, craving evil things, worshipping idols, worldliness, and sexual immorality.
0: So don't be disqualified. Don't spend your life wandering in the wilderness. Cease from your own efforts. Forsake sin. Cross the Jordan. Enter into God's rest, and your joy will be full. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these awesome verses, Lord, this amazing theme that goes right through the bible and it's spoken of in so many different places the promised land it's the rest of god and lord back then it was only a picture was a shadow the reality was yet to come we in the new covenant in the church age we get to live in the reality of the sabbath we get to walk by faith and we have the holy spirit living within us Lord, help us to put our faith in you and to be willing to give up the temporary things and to trust in the things that we cannot see, to trust that what you have for us in heaven is by far greater and has a much greater weight of glory, a much bigger weight of glory than all the trials and tribulations that we will suffer down here. So help us, Father, to put you first and to believe what you say, and to understand that our obedience is a measure of our faith and our love for you. So if we're not obeying, if we're holding on to things, help us to repent, to recognize that, yep, I'm doing that, it's my responsibility, it's my choice, and then to willingly say, I hate it,
1: but I do love you. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.